moment that we have left, we want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. I'm Sam Mitchell, and these are my stories. Hi folks, having a good day today. Let me the first welcome you to Autism Rocks and Rolls. Now before we begin, I must say that I am not a doctor psychiatrist. If your son or daughter needs to be diagnosed with autism, please see a physician. I only speak based on my experiences. I also do not own the rights to this music. Both musics were found on www.archive.org and realmp3.com. Now, I do have some shouts that are paid for the following. So the first one is Peanut and Little Blues Tattoo. Hey, my man Peanut is one of the biggest supporters. He's a creator and owner of the Little Blues Tattoos in Bloomington, Indiana. You want to get inked? Go see him on the west side of Bloomington, Indiana today. And, hey guys, we have a special announcement from two lovely ladies at the BC2M Mental Health Club at Eastern Green. We are from Eastern Green Bring Change to Mind. Our main goal is to make mental health a positive topic in order to erase the stigma in our community. Right now, we have some big projects coming up, including a cake pop event where everyone can come hang out, listen to music, and of course, eat a cake pop. We are also going to be sponsoring a club fair for the incoming freshmen, and we're always looking for new and positive people to come join our team. If you want to join us, contact us on Instagram at easterngreen.bc2m or email us at bringchangedyourmind.eghs at gmail.com. Thank you. All right. Thank you, ladies. And yes, I'm getting hungry for a cake pop myself. So I also want to give a shout to Rob Bowen. I'd also like to thank him at the Living Room Center Carpet Sales in Bedford, Indiana. Rob made a generous donation to my podcast and business, and we want to give him some advertisement. See them today for all of your carpet and flooring needs. I also got given a Farm Bureau. I'd also like to thank my man Brandon Barrett at Farm Bureau in Bedford, Indiana. He also gave a generous donation to help me build my podcast and business. Visit him there today for all your insurance needs. Please check out his also his donation. He does cast for kids as well. Brandon and his wife run this fishing charity and helped many kiddos over the years. And I got to go into Wagon Wheel. And I want to welcome our new sponsor to Bloomington, Indiana. They are your local shop, steakhouse, and caterer. They have the largest variety of made in-house products that you will find in Southern Indiana. Along with their house-made deli, side dishes, salads, and lunch meats, they make eight different flavors of marinades. And guess what? They also have DoorDash now, which is self-serve, which I kind of need in my life. But anyway, I hope to they'll grow. And yes, I have to sing this too. Rock me, mama, like a wagon wheel. Hey, mama, rock me. All right, so I had to do that. But anyway... The next one I got to get to is the Soul Juice. Owner Jordan Honeycutt at Soul Juice in Bloomington, Indiana is amazing. He donated to my silent auction. He's going to advertise me through his social media accounts. Want to get healthy nutritionally? Go to Soul Juice today. Now, I also give some thank yous. I got to give one to Austin Riley and his dad, Jason. What great guests on this last episode. C-136, Austin Riley taking a lap for more information. But Austin is breaking down barriers one lap at a time, literally. And I got to give one to Candace Joseph, the Business Knowledge Broker Hour podcast. I love being on this lady's radio show. Check her out. The next one I got to give to is Dr. Stephan Holmes, Coverage Autism Radio. Miss Holmes is a certified autism specialist and a Christian counselor. I was very happy to be on her show. Next one I gave is to Matt Asner. Yes, I got to take Ed Asner's son, Matt, and his wonderful wife, Nava, from Ed Asner's Family Center in California. I will be on their show at the end of the month. Check them out. They are doing wonderful things. And I went to the Mogul Speed Network. Like I always say, I love joining their networking events. It's so fun. I have met so many wonderful people. I've had great opportunities that steam from these. 
And I got to go into Pandora and iHeartRadio because now I'm on there officially. So check them out. Now, I also got to say my sign auction is still going on this entire month of April for Autism Acceptance Month. I will list the link in the show notes. Still lots of things to bid on. I'll be using the money to join the Mental Health Radio Podcast Network and continue to raise awareness about autism. Now, folks, we have a quick advertisement and we'll be right back. Green County General Hospital is proud to support Sam Mitchell and Autism Rocks and Rolls. Green County General Hospital is located in Linton, Indiana. We offer a broad scope of health services at the hospital, as well as four medical clinics located throughout Green County. My Linton Clinic, my Worthington Clinic, my Westgate Clinic, and my Bloomfield Clinic. We also offer an orthopedic and sports medicine center with Dr. John Hammerstein, located in Linton, Indiana. Our Women's Health Center is located at the My Linton Clinic with two board-certified OBGYNs, Dr. Douglas Lawson and Dr. Laurel Walton. Check out our website for more information, greencountyhospital.com. Enjoy the podcast, and we appreciate your support in removing the stigma from autism. All right. Thank you very much. And I would like to think this is a good hospital to go to if you're having some medical issues. Now, we have another treat for you today. My guest is Anthony Aani, aluminum of Michigan State basketball. He's been turned one of the most sought after speakers in the world today, and he's going to be with us on Autism Rocks and Rolls today. Ianni was diagnosed with PDD or Asperger's when he was four. This did not stop him, though, from being one of the most talented basketball players at Michigan State. Although entering the basketball game was often hard for Ianni, although he had a learning disability for years, and although doctors told his parents not to expect much from him, and he kept a secret from his teammates, all this could be further from the truth, and his abilities are not a secret anymore. Ianni is now a husband, a father, and travels the world educating about autism acceptance. He also takes a relentless tour bullying campaign on the road all over the nation. Yanni and I are breaking down those bears together. Welcome, Mr. Yanni, and how are you doing, bud? Good, Sam. How you doing today, buddy? I'm all right. So my first question to you is, what does having PDD mean to you? Man, that's a good question. To me, it's just like, you know, in some days, you know, having PDD NOS to me, it basically just means that I have a lot of unique skills and a lot of unique traits that some other people may not have. But at the same time, you know, I also got to learn, you know, more about, you know, PDD NOS the older I got. Because I know in middle school, like I was in a resource classroom from when I was in middle school all the way till I graduated from high school. And early on, I really didn't know what type of learning disability I had. And then I started to realize that, you know, there were other people in my resource classroom. Some had autism, some had uh, reading comprehension issues, some had ADD, ADHD. I didn't know what I had. So the whole mind and my whole thinking was, all right, I have a learning disability. I just don't know what it is. And that is, that wasn't until I was a freshman in high school. And then my parents have told me what the doctors and professionals said about me when I was five years old. You know, they told my family that because I have autism, that I would barely graduate from high school, never go to college, never be an athlete, end up in a group institution with other autistic individuals like myself the rest of my life. So when my parents told me this story, there were two sides of it. The first side of me was, okay, well, now I know what I have. Now I know what my learning disability is, what my diagnosis is. But then the other side of me was like, all right, who would say this about a five-year-old? You know, why would anybody want to say something like that? So that kind of became my motivation to go and prove people wrong. So Having PDD to me meant that it still means to me that I have a lot of unique traits and a lot of unique skills that come with it. But at the same time, having PDD also helped motivate myself to go out and prove just any of those doctors and professionals and any doubter and hater I have my life wrong and to show them that, you know what, I'm not going to let autism define me. I'm going to go out and define myself and prove to other people that I can do certain things despite having autism. You can definitely define yourself in any way, no matter what 
struggles you're going through. I've seen that with people. I don't, some people don't think that, but it's incorrect. No, no question, man. And, you know, for me, you know, it's like I tell other advocates, I tell other folks on the spectrum is that, you know, being on the autism spectrum is not a curse. Like it's not. And I know there are some folks out there who think it is a curse and they're not proud of who they are because of it. And I tell, and I preach the complete opposite to those individuals on the spectrum. I tell them to be proud of who you are, be proud that you are on the spectrum because we're part of a very unique community. And it's a community of over three and a half million people in our country who have autism. And I tell each and every single person on the spectrum that I'm proud to be a part of that because, you know, autism helped me make history in so many different ways, but also helped me encourage others to be proud of who they are and help go above and beyond their goals and dreams of what other people tell them in life. Yes. Always be proud of yourself, no matter what. No, no question, man. Always be proud. No question. So what were your initial thoughts when you learned that you had PDD? You know, it was kind of a bit of a relief, Sam, because, you know, again, I spent all those years trying to figure out, you know, what was my learning disability, but I never asked questions about it. Like I didn't ask questions about it to my parents. Like even when I was in my IEP meetings, my individualized education plan meetings, I didn't ask anybody what, you know, what my diagnosis was or anything like that. So when my parents finally told me what my diagnosis was, PDD-NOS being on the autism spectrum, it was kind of a relief because now it's like, okay, now I get to learn more about myself. Now I get to learn more about who I am on the spectrum. Now I get to learn more about what autism is. So the older and older I got, the more and more I started to learn more about autism, how, this, how the spectrum is so massive, how, you could, how there are so many different people on the spectrum that could be uh, higher functioning or lower functioning. So it definitely kind of helped me learn more and more about myself and my struggles and my characteristics that I had, but it also helped me learn more and more about autism and the spectrum itself. You get to have, you got to have that eureka moment basically. Yeah, absolutely. Because when I was back in middle school or even elementary school, like there were times where I said, said some things that were just really out of the ordinary or that were different than everybody else. And I didn't quite understand why some people didn't quite get some of the things that I said. And oh, I when I got that. old, I had those moments. I, yeah, you understand what I'm talking about. And so, but when my parents finally told me about it, I was like, oh, well, this explains why I say this, I do that, why I may have these moments at times, why I hated fire drills growing up, why I couldn't be in basketball and football games when I was four years old, because, you know, just the sounds and the lights and the arenas and the crowd was just too much of an overload for me. It was a stimulus overload for me. So, like you said, it finally kind of became that eureka moment for me like oh well this is why that happened so so i'm definitely glad that you know that moment kind of came and happened because again i think for me had my parents told me at a younger age i don't think i would have understood because you know i would have been mature enough to understand what was going on but i think at the same time my parents wanted to tell me going into high school because they obviously thought that this was a way to kind of light a fire in me and just to see how far I could take this, how far I can, you know, just go, you know, from being told about my diagnosis. And I'm glad they did. I'm glad they told me, you know, at the time that they did. Me too. I'm glad they got to tell you too. So now, how do you yeah. think like PDD brains operate? Definitely different than everybody else. That's for sure. But like for me, Sam, you know, I'm very black and white with things. So what that means is, is somebody may say something to me and I will take it the complete opposite. And growing up, I had a tough time understanding nouns, verbs, idioms. So a good example here, like it's raining out, it's raining where I live today. So if somebody had told me at four years old or five years old that it's raining cats and dogs outside, I would probably run out the nearest door and go outside hoping that a cat or a dog would literally fall into my hands because, you know, that's how serious I thought idioms were. Like if somebody told me, oh, it's raining cats and dogs outside, 
my automatic thinking was, oh, there's actually going to be a cat or a dog that's going to fall in my arms. You take things literally like I do. I do. I, I do. do. And I do too, man. So yeah, so you get it. So like, and jokes and sarcasm are my worst. Like I can't tell when people are joking and when people are just kidding or being sarcastic. And I have these struggles to this day and I'm going to continue to have them for the rest of my life, which that's what makes me me, you know, which I'm proud of that, which is fine. But I'll have those struggles forever. Um, I mentioned the fire drills. I hated the lights and the sounds, you know, so every time we had a drill in school, I would cover my eyes, cover my ears because I just couldn't stand it. And then sometimes like, you know, I'll have like random like fidgeting in my foot, like, or, you know, I'll just like just do random things. Like if I want to keep my foot going in a circle while I'm sitting on the couch or whatever, like it's just something I've been doing my whole life and just how I operate, you know? So for example, you know, I'm not a very, when it comes to math, I'm awful at math. I am awful and what's yeah, really yeah. yeah and what's really crazy as as you know is that you know people on the autism spectrum a lot of their strong suits are in math and i always found that funny to me because i'm like man like there are a lot of folks i know on the autism spectrum who are not who are great at math but i feel like i'm the only one who got left out of it you're not anymore and here's why I'll, let me explain why for me so yeah yeah so for me here's the deal like two plus equals four we know that but when you're like telling me it's long division like it's x equals Oh, yeah. I, like, they tell, like, so you have to do this in order to get to this. Okay. Mm -hmm. I don't care about how to get it. I just want to know, like, how do you do it? Just tell me, like, okay, 4x divide by 2x. Boom. Okay. Got it. Don't be like 4x <laughs> equals 2x because you have to divide, blah, 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 blah. To me, that's or just it was like, uh, now you just lost me. Or when I was in high school, we, I did uh, algebra. I had I took an algebra class, like A squared plus B squared <laughs> equals C squared. I'm like, oh, man, like, don't do this to me. <laughs> like, but the other thing is too, Sam, and you'll probably agree with me on this, is that, you know, my learning process, I can't pick things up as quickly as like the normal 4.0 straight A student would. Because for me, my whole life, it's been about learning things step by step, process by process, second by second. And I remember at the end of my senior year in high school, I went and spoke at a little bit of a, at a teacher's conference at my high school. It was just all my teachers. So they had me on stage on a panel. And one of the questions was, you know, what's your learning style like? How can us teachers learn from you? And some of my teachers in that audience knew about me being on the spectrum, but some of them didn't. And I just kind of told flat out, I said, well, for me, my learning process has always been slow. Like I can't pick up things just within a snap of a finger. Like it took me process that I had to take things step by step minute by minute or second by second. I couldn't do things like all at once. Like I had to really just like, you know, okay, do this math problem one at a time and then step by step. And my resource room teacher taught me that too, like my high school, because there were times when I was in high school where I would get so frustrated by a simple math problem that to the normal average human being would be simple. But to me, somebody who's on the spectrum, it took me longer because I had to learn it, process, you know, step, do it step by step. And my resource room teacher just told me that, you know, don't pile everything on, just take things step by step and minute by minute. Oh yeah, that's definitely, that's why I'm in the B track a lot with my classes. I don't know if they had the B track in your time frame, but we take things a little slower, review yep. it a little more. That's what we did in my resource classroom too. Like, you know, no matter what subject it was, even though my strongest subject was always U.S. history or geography, because I can remember dates and places and times really easily. If you put a math equation in front of me, like I'm not, I'm going to struggle big time. Yeah. But so no matter what subject it was, my resource room teacher was always to make sure to sit next to me and say, 
all right, what subject do you want to do first? And I'll just say, all right, let's just do math, get it out of the way because it's harder. All right, let's do these problems one by one, step by step. And don't get frustrated. It's going to be tough, but just know that you take it step by step and not get frustrated, you're going to be okay. Yes. If you don't, as long as you get frustrated, I think you'll get there. Just chill out and take a drink of water. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Now, what is the most rewarding and most difficult thing about having PDD in your eyes? Oh, man. Um, I think for me, the rewarding part is knowing that I could tell other people about my story, especially those who are on the spectrum to know that I've been in your shoes before. Like, I know what it's like to, uh, I know what it's like for people to doubt you, to bully you, to tease you because of you having autism or other, uh, because of another person having autism. I've always thought that's been a strength because, you know, to me, like sharing my story of the obstacles and challenges I've had, I've had to overcome being on the autism spectrum with PDD NOS, just for me to share that to others, it, it really gives me, you know, a joy in life to know that I can inspire others to go out and do incredible things despite having autism. The only negative part about it is like, there are times where, again, I'll bring up the jokes and sarcasm piece. There are times where I wish I could understand like some of my friends jokes, but they're actually, you know, serious sometimes or they're not serious. And I really wish like I could understand that better. Yeah. You don't know. Like you're like, um, sometimes you're like, are you kidding? Like, could you just tell me like you do that? Like, are you like being serious right now? Or are you just can't I like, I just can't tell. Can you tell me? Right, exactly. And I think that's the only negative thing that about being on the autism spectrum or having PDD is, is that, you know, not being able to understand some people's jokes and sarcasm at times, it really is frustrating. But at the same time, I also got to keep reminding myself, hey, if you don't understand it, just ask them, just ask somebody if they were joking and being serious. It's okay to ask for help. And I think Sam, in my opinion, that's the one thing that we've gotten away and today as a society is that we don't want to ask people for help. We don't want to ask others for advice or encouragement because yeah, I just want to brush it off and be like, right, right. You, you know, pass it on it, brush it off. You'll be good to go. Mm, right. It, wrong. Especially, especially today's younger generation of kids, you know, because sometimes they think they're the adults, but when you're 18, 17 years old, you're not quite an adult yet. You're not out making your own decisions. Like you're still at home with your family. You know, it's okay to go and ask somebody for help, especially if it's if it's your own family member. Because you know, I've always told people like your family members, no matter who it is, whether it's mom, dad, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, cousins, your best friend's family. Like it doesn't matter. Like if you need help or you have questions or, you, or you're confused on something, like don't be afraid to step up to the plate and say, hey, you know, what did you mean by that? Yes, 100%, man. So Now, what advice would you give to someone who just learned they had PDD? My advice would be just continue to learn more about what it is, you know, some of your struggles that you have with it, your, the certain characteristics you have as well, and to never get down on yourself. And just to know that even though you have PDD, like, it doesn't define who you are. Like I mentioned earlier, like you define who you are. You define your successes. You define where you want to go in life. I mean, autism does not define you. Autism should never bring you down. And because the only person that's going to bring you down in life is yourself. And if you got dreams and goals in life, go get them. Like, because again, you're the only one that's stopping you from doing all those great things in life. So, you know, don't get frustrated. Continue to ask others for help, get advice, whatever you need, and just know that you define what you do in life and not, yeah. and not a diagnosis. Yeah, what you said reminds me, and this sounds kind of corny, but what you remind me said what Larry the Cable Guy says kind of, get her done. That's what you got to do. You got to get her done. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Or like Nike's uh, Nike's old saying, just do it. So I also want to talk to you about your basketball, obviously. So who or what inspired you to have a career in basketball? It was obviously my mom and my dad 
and, and mo- mainly because, you know, both my parents played athletics in college. My dad played baseball at Michigan State when he was in college. And my mom was a three-sport All-American at Adrian College. She played volleyball, basketball, and softball. But she dominated in basketball. Like, she was All-American in basketball. She, she was an All-Academic in basketball, too. She still holds, like, nine records, you know, league and school records. She's the school's all-time leading scorer in both men and women's basketball with 1,699 points. She has a jersey retired. I mean, she's one of the greatest players to ever play in the history of Adrian College basketball. I mean, she averaged 25, 10, and 5. I mean, which is insane. And then that was during a time period, Sam, where there was no three-point line and there was no girls like basketball, like an actual, they played with a men's ball. They didn't have a girls ball they played with. They played with a men's ball. So my mom was doing all this. So just seeing what my parents did, you know, in their high school and college careers made me want to take it to that next level. But then also growing up and watching incredible players like Michael Jordan, who's one of my all-time favorites, Shaquille O'Neal, who's one of my favorite post players of all time, Allen Iverson, who was my favorite player watching growing up, because, you know, just watching those guys and how great they were, how dominant, how tough they were, those guys were the reason why I played basketball. And along with the fact that my parents played in college athletics, and I was around Michigan State athletics and Michigan State basketball my whole life, just just being a part of those atmospheres in Michigan State, it really, really made me want to go out and have a, college, a basketball career, whether it was at Michigan State, you know, preferably at Michigan State or anywhere else. But Michigan State basketball to me was always the dream goal. It was always that. But, you know, basketball got started for me because of my parents and because of all those, all those times I would watch Michael Jordan and Shaq and Allen Iverson play. Seems like a good career to have, honestly. Now, out of curiosity, do you think it's basketball is then therapeutic for you? And if so, how? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, one of the many things that I share with people all over the country whenever I get to go out and speak is that I have many, many coping mechanisms, a lot of them. And when I was in high school, whenever I got stressed out or I had or I was about to have a wig out moment, a stressed out moment, or my anxiety was just way through the roof, you know, I would I would take my mom's car keys and I would go to my high school gym and I would just shoot for like two hours straight because the gym was kind of my way, my therapy, if you will, to get away from the zone. It it was, it it was my happy place because that was a way for me to get away from the world. That was a way for me to not worry about what was going on in school, what was going on in my personal life or what was going on with me being on the autism spectrum. Like my only focus during that time was just shooting for two hours and working on my game whether it was on post moves, dribbling moves, free throws. And and if it wasn't the gym, Sam, like I go find a random basketball court in my neighborhood and just go shoot. Or I would go into my driveway and just shoot for an hour, like just with nobody around me. Because basketball was my way of getting away from the world today. And then when I got older, for example, I don't have basketball in my life anymore. Like I stopped after I graduated in college. But like other things I do as far as like coping mechanisms, you know, to help me relax is, you know, sometimes I'll go for a four mile walk in my neighborhood or, you know, before the pandemic, I would go to the high school that I currently coach at in Livonia and Livonia Churchill, and I would go lift weights and just throwing those weights around was kind of a way for me to relieve my anger and frustration. Or I would just listen to music, whether it was hip hop, R&B, country, you know, soft jazz, like whatever it is to help relax me, like it's going to help. And so that's why I've always told people that whatever you like in life, whether it's a sport or music or whatever, workout, whatever you do, if that's a way for you to kind of, if that's your therapy, if you will, to kind of just relax and get away from the world, your happy place, your safe zone, 
then use it to the fullest of its ability. Yes, sir. Always use your sanctuaries, as I say. But out Absolutely. of curiosity, was there like a memorable like time you had to relax? You know, like what was like the most peaceful like time you had to go in the gym? I think for me, it was it was my sophomore year. Um, in high school and anytime like I was at lunch anytime I got done with my lunch like I would just go into our coach's office in the gym get a ball go to the main gym and just start shooting and because you know when you're in high school there's always a lot of drama there's always a lot of you know riffraff conversations in the hallways like all that stuff and when all that became too much for me I was like you know what I'm gonna eat my lunch and I'm gonna go to the gym because you know I got a half hour lunch break. It takes me like five minutes, eight minutes to eat. So during the rest of that time, those 15, 20 minutes, I'm going to go to the gym and just be by myself and shoot. And I walked in there one time and they were having a girls basketball game later that night. So both sides of the bleachers were already out. So I remember I was just shooting around and I go and sit in the bleachers for a little bit. And I remember just sitting back and looking around the gym and I just took a deep breath and I was like, like, yeah, like this is, this is my place. This is my place where nobody can touch me. Nobody can mess with me. Nobody can talk to me. This is my place right here. So yeah. that's, when I, that's when I was completely at peace right there. When I just kept looking around that gym, leaning back in those bleacher chairs and just say, yeah. This, this is, is the island that you claimed. This is my island. That is exactly, that's exactly how I would put it. Now, I do want to talk about your school life. So when you were in high school, you mentioned your resource teacher, but did any of the other teachers help you? You can, and you can name a specific teacher. You can talk about all the teachers. Your call, how oh, you want to answer it. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, and, and this is the one thing I love about, you know, the school district that I graduated from, Oklahoma's Public Schools, was that it wasn't just one teacher who helped me out throughout my entire school life. It was all of them. It was my elementary teachers. It was my parapros in elementary school. It was my middle school teachers, my middle school gym teacher, my middle school resource room teacher, all of them. Same thing with high school, my coaches, my resource room teacher. But I have an incredible relationship with pretty much all my teachers. I really do. And, you know, I, I try to stay in touch with them as much as I can today because of everything they've done for me and everything they continue to do for me and the support that they give me. But when I was in high school, I had some incredible teachers, you know, like Miss Freeman, like Mrs. Tandock, Miss McCarthy. Ms. Schaefer, who was my resource room teacher, um, and Mr. Swan, Mr. Carrier, like those are only a few of the teachers that I've named off. And they, they were all incredible. Like just everything they did for me, saying to me, hey, if you need extra help, let me know. I remember Mrs. Tandock. Tandock was my anatomy and biology teacher. So she taught me biology my sophomore year and anatomy my senior year. And I remember like, I'm not afraid to admit this. I, I was probably the worst test taker that you would ever see. I would do all my assignments perfectly, get A's and B's on all my assignments, no matter what assignment it was. But when it came to any kind of test I took, I really struggled because there would be words, sentences, or phrases on those test questions that I got so confused by, I would completely get them mixed up. And you know what I'm talking about. You know where I'm going to go with this. And so that's why I had the test accommodations that I did, which was extended time. Um, my resource room teacher would read it for me. If I had a math test, I was allowed a calculator if I was permitted to have one. I took my test in a separate room because if you and I took a test right here and now in front of a bunch of people, I couldn't keep focus. I'd be more worried about what so-and-so is doing in the front row over here, what so-and-so back here is doing behind me. Like You'd be worried so about someone sharpening that, your pencil. Yep, exactly. So it was a way for me not to get distracted. So what Tandoc did, and, I, and I've known Tandoc for a long, long time because she, 
my mom still coaches varsity volleyball at Okemos, but she, my mom took a four year hiatus to watch me, to watch my high school career. But Tandok helped coach with my mom. So I've known her for a long, long time. So for me, you know, I remember one day Tandok said to me, hey, come see me after class. And whenever a teacher said that to me, I knew what it was about. It was about my tests because I had never gotten any trouble with my teachers before. I, I, and I say this in good conscience. I never once went to the principal's office when I was in high school. Not once. And if I did, it was to go drop some stuff off. The only time I ever saw my principal or my vice principal was in the hallways of school in the morning when I walked into the building or in the cafeteria. I never went to those offices for any reason whatsoever. And quick funny story, after I graduated high school, like two years after I went to go visit my high school and I knocked on my principal's door and he looked at me and said, this has got to be the first time that you've ever been in my office, isn't it? I'm like, this is the very first time I've been to your office. So Tandok saw me one day, told me to stay after class. And this was my senior year of high school. We sat down and she asked me, she said, Anthony, so I got to know, like, you know, all the assignments you do, you pass them with flying colors. But when it comes to your tests, you know, how come, you know, what's the reason for that? And I said, I don't know. I said, they're just, I said, there are certain things that I really struggle with when it comes to, you know, the anatomy tests. And she said, all right, well, here's what I want to do. I want you to retake the test. You know, one of our tests, the, the test you took uh, two days ago. I was like, okay. She's like, so, but we're not going to do it on paper. You're going to do a visual exam. What I mean by that is I'm going to write something on the board and I'm going to put a drawing on there for you. And you're going to tell me which is which. I was like, okay. I said, that's what you want me to do. I'll do that. We did the oral, the visual test. And I ended up getting a B on it. And she could tell that I was a better visual learner than I was writing stuff down. Because we took a lot of notes in her class. And I wrote down every single letter, grammar, punctuation, whatever it was that was on that board. And she knew because like I had like stacks and stacks of notes I took all the time in class. But after that visual exam, I took all my tests from there on out in anatomy, I took them visually and ended up working out for me because she could tell that that was my strength was I was a visual learner. And it's true. And I think that's why I was able to have some success in basketball was because if you show me a play on the board, if you show me a play on the court, I'm going to go ahead and do it. But if you write down a play for me on a piece of paper, I'm probably not going to be successful at it. So Tandok definitely saw the biggest difference to me for me when it came to taking a test. Yes. I think what you're saying is you kind of basically have to see it in right. order to believe it. I guess, right. Way to exactly. Do it. exactly. 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 And I, and I'm like that too. I have to see sometimes I'm like, you know what? I can't do this. You have to show me this, like what to do. Otherwise I can't do it. It's just hands down. I know myself well enough. I'm sorry, but right. you have to show exactly. me like how the process works. Exactly. Like you show me how it works. You show me how the process goes. I'll go ahead and learn it and then I'll go out and do it. Boom. Exactly. So now I know you had to deal with bullying, but did any of the students have your back at school? A lot of my teammates did because my sophomore year, I was the youngest on the team. We had more juniors on my on that team that year than seniors. We only had two seniors when I was um, on varsity my sophomore year. The rest were all juniors. But each and every single one of those guys took me under their wing. And anytime they saw me in the hallways or somebody was trying to mess with me in the hallways, one of them would walk up right by my side and say, hey, man, come with us. And then I'm walking in the hallways with my varsity teammates, you know, the rest of the way. So they always have my back. Like, and if I was down, if I was feeling down and out, they would call me up. They would text me up. They would stop me in the hallways to make sure that I was doing okay. And it wasn't just my teammates. It was a lot of really close friends that I still have in my life today. One of them was my, uh, my best friend, Jeff Hall. And the one thing I love about Jeff is Jeff is one of those individuals, Sam, who 
he does not care what you say or think about him. And that's what I respect about him the most. Is, and, and, I'll, and this is a good story. This is a perfect, and you'll love this example. So he lives in Michigan now with, with him and his fiance. But before, you know, he lived out in Long Island, New York. So I remember one weekend, one Memorial weekend, about seven years ago, I went to go visit him because I'd never been to New York, never been to Manhattan. I was there for basketball, but I never got to, you know, be a tourist. You know, I never got to see the city and check out all the sites. So I go out there and we go to this t-shirt store um, at a mall just outside of Manhattan. And, you know, it was a t-shirt store where they had a bunch of wrestling shirts. They had like Daniel Bryan, they had CM Punk, Hulk Hogan, you know, Ultimate Warrior, all these current and old school, you know, and the Hulk Hogan shirt, it just said Hulkamania on it, but it was a sleeveless Hulkamania shirt. So he buys the shirt. And so he goes in the changing room and throws on that Hulkamania shirt. So he's got a sleeveless Hulkamania shirt and he comes out of the changing room and I go, I go, hey, aren't you worried about what other people are going to say or think about your Hulkamania shirt? And he just looked at me and said, he's like, I don't care. He's like, do you like it? I'm like, well, duh. Yeah. Cause it's Hulk Hogan. Like I love Hulk Hogan, Hulkamania. He goes, well, guess what? I like it. That's all that matters. It's all that matters. Like, I like the shirt. That guy over there doesn't like it because he likes The Undertaker. You know, oh, well, you know, I'm not going to worry about what other people say or think about me. And and he taught me that, you know, our freshman year of high school, Sam, we were walking to class one day and I was just whining and complaining to him about what other people were saying and thinking about me. And this is what he did. He put his arm out, stopped me, looked at me, grabbed me by my shirt collar he tossed me up against a locker, grabbed me by my shirt collar again. And I was like, I was like, dude, like, I didn't say anything to you. Like, I was just telling you about what people were saying and thinking about me. And he looked at me and said, that's why I'm doing this. That's why I got you pinned up against this locker, because I'm sick and tired of you whining and complaining about that. So you need to listen to me because I'm going to tell you this once. Forget about what others say or think about you. Forget about what the world says or thinks about you, Anthony, because at the end of the day, there's only one person's thoughts and opinions in your life that matter the most. And it's not theirs. It's yours. Your thoughts and opinions in life matter the most. Not the world's, not our classmates, it's not the media's, but yours and yours only. Then he yeah. let me go and walk to class. And, and I kid, yeah, I was like, yes, sir. You're the only you one not. who can change your opinion. You are the only one who can change your thoughts. Exactly. And then he let go of my shirt. And then he started walking to class. And I just stood in that spot for 10 seconds looking at him like this. And I'm like, I'm like, my best friend just absolutely pinned me up against a locker for that reason. And that day on, it completely changed everything for me. Now today I have that same mindset. If somebody doesn't like what I'm doing as a motivational speaker, it's like, all right, well, guess what? I like what I'm doing. I like how I like how I deliver my message. If you don't like it, oh, well, because it's my, it's my message. It's my speech. It's my job. Like, yes, sir. It's only yours. You patent it. You're the right. one who has it. If it was me, I would have just told that the guy with the whole command shirt that it was too sweet. <laughs> too sweet, baby. <laughs> and it's funny because, you know, Jeff and I do that all the time. We actually, we, we do the too sweet gesture all the time whenever we see each other. But, um, you know, just, and, and that's what I'm so incredibly proud and blessed with in my life, Sam, is just having incredible friends who have always had my back, the ones who are like brothers to me, the ones who are like closer than sisters to me, like just having their support and their words of encouragement have met have meant more to me than anything in the world. And without that support and encouragement, like I really don't know, you know, whether it was from family or friends, like I really don't know how I get 
where I'm at in my life today. Well, you got someone else who has your back now, so. Absolutely, man. <laughs> so now out of curiosity, we just talked about earlier before we started, so you work for the Michigan Department of Civil Rights. How did you get that opportunity and what are your roles in that department exactly? All right, so long story short, after I graduated from Michigan State, which was in 2012, I was hired by a nonprofit organ, uh, an autism nonprofit organization outside Detroit. And they brought me on to do uh, speaking engagements, whether it's for conferences, anti-bullying, et cetera. So I started my speaking career in the fall of 2012. And, you know, I was really on a roll and then I started, and then I got together with, with a PR group, not too far from where I live in Livonia, Michigan. And we all kind of came up with the idea of the Relentless Tour. So the Relentless Tour is a first ever grassroots anti-bullying initiative of its kind here in the state of Michigan. Like nobody ever done it before. Nobody had ever even attempted it before. And so when I launched it, you know, I was getting bombarded left and right from middle schools and high schools and elementary schools and charter schools and private schools who wanted me to come to their school. And so about a year and a half, about a year after I had launched it, I got a phone call from Matt Wiesaw, who was the director at the Department of Civil Rights. And he said to me, he said, hey, like I've been watching your speaking career for the last year now and just watching the success you've had, you've been having with the Relentless Tour. He said, we're looking for an anti-bullying initiative to head up our bullying department here at Department of Civil Rights. And you're our guy. You know, we want to bring you on. We want you to bring the Relentless Tour with you. And we want you to have as much success with us as you're having right now. And Sam, I didn't even hesitate. Like, I, I was like, you know what? It's, it's a government job. It's a state job. Like, I'm, I'm going to take it. Like, it, this is a job that could really help me and my family out, especially, you know, from a benefit perspective. Like, so I didn't even hesitate. So I started working for them on, on March 1st, 2015. And I remember my first day on the job, I walked in Matt's office because, you know, Matt Matt always had open door policy. You know, Matt's retired now, but whenever he was there, he always had an open door policy. You go in and talk to him about whatever you want. So I walked in his office, excited to see him. I sat down at his desk and the first thing he says to me, he goes, all right, it's all yours. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, the relentless tour. This is your baby. You run with it. You do what you want with it. You can go all over the state. You can go all over the country with this thing. I don't care. I want you to have as much success as you want. Just make sure like whatever you're going to do, you get clearance from me first. And then we go from there. So from day one, I was brought on a department of civil rights. Like they wanted me to be successful with the relentless tour. And, and, and I'm proud to say, Sam, it, it's been, the most, in my opinion, it's been one of the most successful anti-bullying initiatives, not just in my state, but maybe throughout the country. And the last three years, I've spoken to over 175,000 individuals in over 400 schools and events. And had the pandemic not happened last year, had it not happened, I would have spoken to over 180,000 individuals just last year alone. Like that's how much success that this initiative has been having. And I'm proud of it. And I'm proud of the messaging that's behind it. And I'm proud of the schools that are part of it too. And, you know, I, I couldn't ask for the incredible amount of support and, and encouragement I've gotten from people to keep this thing going. Definitely. You should be proud of what you're doing, no matter what it is, unless it's like robbing someone. That's and, and I, and <laughs> I am. <laughs> no, I, I, and I'm, I'm very proud of it. And, you know, I know a lot of people tell me that don't stop, you know, keep going. And, and my saying is, Hey, I got about 23 more years until I'm 65 years old. That's when I plan on retiring. So I'm going to continue to do this for as long as yes. I can. Live your 23 years, man. You deserve it. Thanks, yeah. man. <laughs> no problem. So you also decided to go get a 
bachelor's degree in sociology when you went to college. So what made you decide that? So it was actually kind of something that, that kind of just fell in my lap, if you will, because so I initially started my basketball career at Grand Valley State University for two years. And I immediately wanted to go into communications because I wanted to be a broadcaster. I wanted to be you know, a basketball analyst. So, but to do all that, you got to go through community, you know, get your communications degree. And so my first couple of years at Grand Valley State, that's what it was. And then when I transferred to go follow my dreams and goal of playing for Michigan State University, you know, I sat down with my academic coordinator and it was at a time where I, I wanted to do communications, but, you know, my academic coordinator, Elliot Daniels, he said to me, he said, well, here's the deal. Communications is probably the hardest degree to get here at Michigan State. So we don't know if you'll be as successful in communications, but we really think you would benefit from a sociology degree. And I had no idea what sociology even was when they when they mentioned this to me. And when I asked what sociology was, you know, Elliot told me, he said, well, sociology is basically like the study of people. You know, you could study other cultures, other backgrounds, and other great history events about certain cultures. And he was right. And I took a lot of sociology classes that I got to learn different history about different cultures and different backgrounds about different people. And so and looking back on it, it's definitely right up with my alley with what I'm doing now, because I work with people, I could study, you know, different backgrounds, different cultures, and I get to go to different towns and different events. And it definitely, and definitely having a sociology degree kind of helped prepare me for all of this. So I definitely think that just having that sociology degree and taking those classes, those sociology classes, it really helped prepare me. And so that's kind of how my sociology major fell into place because communications was too hard at Michigan State. But a lot of my academic coordinators, especially Elliot, thought that I'd benefit even more being in sociology. And he was definitely right. Definitely. I think knowing you, just talking to you, I think sociology was for you. But out of curiosity, what is the most fascinating part of sociology? I think for me, the most fascinating part like I said, it was just learning about the different cultures and backgrounds and the history. So a good example is, you know, when I was in high school, I studied geography, world history, and U.S. history. But when I was taking one of my sociology classes, um, my buddy Jared, who um, played on the football team at Michigan State and still one of my good friends to this day, we took sociology classes together because he was the same major as me. So we were in social class one day, and it was kind of a it was kind of a history class, a sociology history class. So one day. We were sitting in class and we and my teacher was talking about the history between the Italians and the Irish from way, way back in the 1300s. And so apparently the Irish and the Italians did not like each other very much back in the day. And so I didn't know about that. And I'm Italian, like I'm Italian. So and I, I should have known this history because I am Italian, but I didn't know at the time. So and my buddy Jared, he's Irish. You know, his last name is Magaha. So it's M, it's, it starts with MC. So it's an Irish name. We're learning all this. He looks at me, I look at him and we're done. We get done with class. He goes, he goes, does this mean you and I officially don't like each other now because I'm Irish and you're Italian? Is that what's going to happen? I'm like, no, man, like, come on now. But, but we didn't know about that. Like, and I thought that was very, very unique. I thought it was very fascinating because Again, it was one of those deals where I didn't know about that. And the more and more I took classes like this at Michigan State, the more and more I got to know more about certain cultures and backgrounds about certain things. Yeah, that sounds extremely fascinating. Now, that, since you're talking about Jerry, why don't we get into him? So who is Jerry Mongreen and how has he supported you? Jerry Magaha? Yeah. That's what I meant to say. Sorry. Oh, no, you're good, man. So Jared was one of my good friends when I was at Michigan State. And 
you know, Jared played football at Michigan State. And just like, you know, we, we understood each other really well because we both respected each other. We both respect our sports, football and basketball. And so for me, he was just incredible to be, and he still is incredible to be around because he, he's a goofy guy. He loves wrestling, you know, and in a lot of ways, he was kind of like, you know, my closest friend, Jeff. I mean, just same similarities. And what I love about Jared, too, is like he's a very down to earth guy. He's a gentle giant, as, as, as I like to call him, because, he, you know, he's 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, and he weighed about 310 pounds. He played offensive lineman at Michigan State. And just telling him what I've gone through and what I've been through and for him just to continue to have my back and say, hey, you know, I got you no matter what, no matter what people say or think, like, I got you no matter what. Like, this is, you know, we're brothers for life. And I think that's the one thing that, you know, Michigan State, being a Michigan State Spartan has always taught me was that it didn't matter what sport you played at Michigan State, we were all Spartans and we all had each other's backs. And I think that was always the one cool part about being at Michigan State was that it didn't matter what sport you were. Didn't matter where you came from. It didn't matter what high school you went to, whether it was a rival high school, it didn't matter. We always had each other's back no matter what. Yes, yeah, so you, you got to find that one person who will have your back. And just FYI, I bet someone will have it, period. I mean, just got it just takes the right person in the right time. Oh, absolutely, man. And when, once you have that right person, like, you're good to go. Yeah, you're pretty much good to go after that. So now you also talked about how you didn't tell Jerry about your diagnosis until like a couple of years ago. So why did you not tell him and what scared you about it? It was my sophomore year of, um, no, it wasn't my sophomore year. It was my, it was my second year at Michigan State, I told him. And, you know, he's just like, he was just like flat out impressed by, you know, how far I've came in my life so far. And it, it kind of inspired him to go out and just like be great at what he, what he does now, which is being a police officer in Knoxville, Tennessee. But when it came to my teammates, though, I kind of kept that quiet, you know, because there were certain teammates of mine at Michigan State who knew about my diagnosis and there were others who didn't. And when you're on a team of guys that like I was at Michigan State, it's a group of guys that love to joke around and love to be sarcastic with each other. And that was a really big struggle for me. And, you know, one of my teammates, Draymond Green, who plays for the Golden State Warriors in the NBA, he was number one on that list when it came to sarcasm and jokes. And so for me, you know, I didn't want to tell my teammates about it, but it wasn't until there was a little incident in the weight room one day during one of our workouts where, you know, Draymond was joking with me about how I had to go do the VO2 workout. Now, for those of you listening to this that don't know what a VO2 workout is, it's where they have you test your blood levels, your blood sugar, how much body fat you have, your endurance, your lungs, like all that stuff. And you only do it once. So when you're an incoming freshman, you only do it once and you're done. If you're a transfer though, you got to do it. So I did do it twice. I did it my freshman year at Grand Valley State and I did it again when I transferred to Michigan State. So I already did it. And we go to the weight room for workouts and Draymond was joking with me about how coach Izzo, my basketball coach at Michigan state, he said, you know, coach Izzo said, you, you gotta go do the VO two workout later today. And in my mind, I was thinking, is he serious? Is he joking? Like, cause he just told me coach Izzo said, I gotta go do it. And so the whole workout, he kept going on and on and on about it. And then when finally somebody told me it was a joke, I don't have to do it. I got in his face about it. And, you know, we started arguing, you know, we started pushing each other. And he flat out says to me after that, like, look, if you, if you can't take a joke, just don't be on the team then. And then my strength and conditioning coach who has known me since I was 10, he pulled Draymond aside and said, Hey, um, Draymond, do you want to know why Anthony can't understand your jokes and sarcasm sometimes? It's because he has autism. He thinks you're picking on him. He doesn't see the gray area. It's very black and white for him. So that's kind of how, you know, the cat was let out of the bag, if you will. 
because all my teammates found out about me being on the autism spectrum. And Draymond came up to me the next day and said to me, you know, why didn't you tell me about all this? And I tell him, well, I didn't know how you're going to react to it. I thought you're going to be like a lot of other people in, in my life that I knew that found out and just treated me differently after that. And he just looked at me and said, Hey man, like kudos to you. Cause look how far you've come despite all this. And so from that day forward, like I didn't have any issues with my teammates as far as saying to them, Hey, were you joking? Were you being serious? You know? And they would just say to me, no, we were just kidding. Don't worry about it. Like you're good. So they, and they got a life lesson in what autism is. And, you know, cause I think a lot of them really did not know what autism was and what some of the struggles and the characteristics were for it. You know, that day in the weight room afterwards, you know, they definitely got a better idea of what autism was after that. Yeah, definitely. And we're going to actually do something, actually. We're going to take a quick advertiser break and a quick commercial. We'll stay tuned. But after that, we're going to talk about Tom Izzo. Hello, everybody. This is Mike Glasscott from the Glass in the Afternoon radio program on News Sports Talk 98.7 and AM 1370 and WGCLradio.com. And on behalf of Wellspring Pain Solutions, they're happy to partner with Sam Mitchell and the Autism Rocks and Rolls podcast. Wellspring Pain Solutions applauds Sam's mission statement to eliminate the stigma associated with autism. Here's what we want you to do. Check out the website, wellspringpainsolutions.com. You'll find out which of the four locations is closest to you. You'll get a chance to meet their team of providers and all the services offered at Wellspring. When you're there... Now the fun really begins. You'll find the link to Sam's website where you'll find all his podcasts, background information on his guests, as well as all the merch in his merchandise store. You'll be amazed. You'll have fun. You'll enjoy it. All we ask you to do is take a listen and spread the word that autism rocks and rolls. All right, folks, and we're back. And I don't want you to be too nervous to meet these people. As I said earlier, before the break, Mr. Ariani, we're going to talk about Tom Izzo. So can you describe your relationship with Tom Izzo? And can you describe his personality from your perspective? And when you describe his personality, you can hype him and roast him. I don't care. Well, I think the last thing I would ever do is roast Coach Izzo. Um, but, you know, my relationship with him, Sam, is, I, you know, it's not it's not just me. It's like this with all his players. You know, it's a father-son relationship because I say that because, you know, when it comes to him, the coach, he's so intense. And he's so intense as a coach because he wants to think he wants you to rebound perfect, box out perfect, play defense perfect. And, I mean, that's why he's won so many big ten championships. That's why he's based on the final four and has won an actual championship. I think the other thing is, too, is that's why he's so hard and tough on guys because he wants them to be great at what he is. And, you know, just like any other five life, whether it is sports, whether it's, you know, music, academics, life, whatever it is, and that's, how, that's how he is with a lot of his players, you know, current and former, like he wants to be great at what he does. And I know a lot of other people sometimes don't understand his coaching techniques, which, you know, I, I tell people all the time, like, if you've never been to one of our practices, if you've never been to a Michigan State game in your life, like, you know, I don't know how you can say something like that until, you, until you've been around our program. But just the relationship I have with him is like, you know, it's incredible. And again, he's one of those individuals who supports me with what I do and how far I want to go. And, you know, the day I came to Michigan State, Sam, the first thing he said to me was like, look, like, here's the deal. Like, just because you have autism doesn't mean I'm going to treat you differently. You know, I'm going to I'm going to treat you and coach you like I, every other player I've had come through here, every All-American I've had come through here. You know, that's how it's going to be. And I flat out told him, I said, that's what I want. Like, I don't want to be treated differently. I don't want any special treatment. Like, I want to be treated like how Magic Johnson was here in Michigan State, how, you know, Jason Richardson was, Morris Peterson, all those great All-Americans in Michigan State, those great players. That's how I want to be. And so, 
you know, he's been a phenomenal part of my life and a big reason why I am where I am today. And he's one of the best. Like, I mean, there's, there's no disrespect to, you know, the greats of all time in college basketball, whether it's Jim Beheim, Roy Williams, Mike Krzyzewski, you know, Tom Izzo tops all of them. You know, I don't care what people say. Tom Izzo tops all those guys because just because of who he is. What he what he's done for Michigan State University and what he's done for the game uh, done for the game of basketball. Definitely, he seems like a good coach and understands you really well. It, he does, man. And it's not just me; it's like that with all his players. Like you know, and I think that's the big he difference gets to his players, basically. Exactly, and I think that's what one of the biggest differences between like a college football team, Sam, and a college basketball team is that you know football has over like a hundred guys on their team, and you know the coach can only know so many players. But when it comes to college basketball, there's only 15, 16 guys on a team and coaches can get to easily know their players, you know, easily without, without question. And so, and that's what I love about coaches though, is like, he gets to know your, he gets to know his players all the time. You know, he has conversations with them. He asks them how they're doing, how their family's doing, how classes are going. You know, he, he's a player coach and he loves it when his players coach him. He loves it when his players teach him. And I think that's the one thing, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to speak for coaches when I say this, but. I think that's the one thing he enjoys about, you know, coaching is that he learns more from his players than maybe they do from him. I hope that's that's what a good coach is to me. So you also had the opportunity to work with Temple Grandin, seeing 124 pictures on the ranch with Temple Grandin. So how did you feel when Temple Grandin asked you if she could use the basketball example of you in her presentation? I was honored by that. We were actually having dinner uh, one night because she came in the state of Michigan and spoke. And, you know, I wanted to sit down with her and just talk about, you know, when it comes to writing a, my book. And I wanted her to get a peek at my book to see what she thought. And, you know, I'm proud to say that she not only endorsed my book, but she wrote a blurb for it, too, for my book, Centered, which is coming September. But I remember, like, the conversation went from talking about, book related to all of a sudden now we're talking about you know my struggles being on the autism spectrum and she asked me you know how were you able to overcome the the stimulations of the arenas and everything going on when it came to you know basketball and so that's when I told her you know um, how I was able to do things and you know so what I did Sam was I told her the story about how you know how I was able to overcome it and what I did was, you know, whether the scoreboard went off, the buzzer, et cetera, I told her I would put my hands on my ears. And when horn on the buzzer would go off, I would slowly take my hands off my ears. And if it was still too much for me, I put them back on my ears. So it was kind of a way for me to control the environment around me, if, if you will. And that's what, that's what Dr. Grandin said to me. And she flat out says to me after that, can I use that as an example of my presentations? I was like, yeah, go for it. So I get a phone call the next day from one of the parents that I met at a conference many years ago saying, hey, Dr. Grandin just mentioned you and how you're able to overcome the stimulation of the arenas and sounds and overloads as a younger kid in basketball arenas. So I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. That's really cool. So, and I'm also excited to work with her again this fall. Um, she and I are scheduled to co-headline a conference together in Nebraska. So, and that's always been one of my dreams, Sam, is to, not only kind of headline a conference with her, but hopefully kind of one day share the stage with her. And you know, I'm beyond excited to have that opportunity, you know, this fall. Yes, I bet you're excited. Now, have you two taught each other anything? Like from, have you taught Temple anything? And have you taught, like has she taught you anything? I think the one thing she has taught me is to go out and inspire as many advocates and families and educators and 
individuals as on the spectrum as much as I can. You know, when she and I met, we we first met three years ago and I was starstruck to be honest, man, because, you know, Temple's always been one of my idols, always been one of my mentors. And, you know, for me to finally meet her, it was, it was a joy. And then a year, you know, not even eight months go by and I'm having dinner with her, which was incredible. And, and we're still connected to this day. And she knows my goal. And my goal is to one day kind of be that person who, you know, she passes the torch down to one day. That's my ultimate dream and goal. And I told her that. I told her, I said, I want to be the guy or the person that you pass the torch down to one day and say, hey, go for it. Go be that person to help lead our community next. And because she's she's done so much for our community in the years that, you know, she's been an advocate and on the speaking circuit. And I think that's the one thing she's taught me is to kind of go out and be that next person and go out and be that role model, that leader and that inspiration that the autism community can look up to. And I don't know if I taught her anything other than the fact that she could use uh, some of my story for her presentations, but I think- Something, right? (laughs) Right. But I think the one thing that I hope that I give to her, the one thing I hope she learns from me is to continue to have the passion for for what she does. And I have no doubt in my mind that she's going to continue to have that passion for a long, long time. Oh yeah. She's been working with animals and I don't think she's going to stop on quitting soon. No, not at all. Not at all. Definitely. Now- my next thing I want to talk about is your speaking. So out of curiosity, after you're done speaking, you talked about once that bullies will suddenly come up and talk to you. So how do you feel mm-hmm. when bullies come and talk to you about bullying the autistic kid? Like, oh, shoot, now I feel kind of bad. Now I get why. And It's not just bullies who bully kids on the spectrum. It's, it's bullies who bully people in general. Whenever I have those conversations, you know, it makes me feel, number one, it knows, it tells me I'm doing my job. But number two, it also tells me that a lot of these kids, whether it's the bullies and the victims themselves, it tells me that the message of my presentations and my stories are really getting to these kids. And that's the main goal. And and I realized, Sam, like I'm not going to inspire every single person I talk to, which, you know, if I can inspire a school of 2,000 people, then great, cool. That's a bonus for me. For me, the goal is simple. It's to make an impact, leave an impact, even if it's only on one person. So as long as I inspire somebody everywhere I go, then I'm doing my job. Then my job is finished out of school. So if I inspire at least one student to go out and be the change and make a change in life, then I'm good. Then I can walk away from that school, walk away from that town knowing, hey, I've done this. I did that. I inspired this person. I feel good. And so, but whenever I get bullies that come up to me and say, hey, I was, I was one of these bullies who bullied this person because he has autism. And I didn't realize why at the time, but now I do. Now I realize why I shouldn't have done it. And for kids, for young middle school kids to say that to me, number one, it tells me how mature that student really is. But number two, it tells me that, hey, the message is getting to them. The message is really opening eyes, if you will. It, it does open eyes for sure, because they realize they get to see the world from another perspective. And because no one's the same, obviously, but it gets to show like, hey, this kid's different. I'm sorry that you can't change him, but why embrace, you should embrace the vision and embrace the change sort of issue, if that makes any sense. Right. Yo, it, it makes all the sense in the world, Sam, because, and I think that's the one thing about the younger generation of kids is that, in my opinion, I think sometimes they get a little scared because they want to see other people try to make that change and not them. But when another person who's been through so much tells that that same person, that same student, hey, the change does not start with me. It starts with you because you're the ones that change somebody's day. You're the one that changed somebody's life. And at the end of the day, you could be the reason why you save somebody's life. It, it really does hit home to a lot of kids because 
when they realize that, hey, I'm responsible for how I change somebody's day, I'm responsible for how I change somebody's life, and I can be responsible for possibly saving a life, then I really do think it kind of opens minds a little bit more. It, it does open minds more. You finally have opened the, opened the brain door, as they say, I guess. Right. <laughs> exactly. Decided, how'd you become an anti-bullying advocate? So how that started was when I was hired by the nonprofit, the non um, autism nonprofit organization in Detroit after I graduated. You know, I was doing like all these, I was going on autism safety trainings with my colleague at the time. And I would just go in there and talk about, you know, my life story. And it was kind of a way for me to promote myself, just being at all these different autism safety trainings. But then my colleague brought in an article, a CNN article about how 65 plus percent of kids with autism, they are the number one targets of bullies in schools across the United States. So that to me, and and my colleague says to me, he said, do you think you do a presentation on bullying? I said, can I do a presentation? I can definitely do it because I've been in these kids' shoes before. I've been here. I've, I've been here before. I've been there. So I did my first ever anti-bullying presentation at St. John's Middle School. And I had three presentations in one day. I did sixth grade, seventh grade, and eighth grade. And I remember my colleagues at the nonprofit, they gave me note cards to read off of because they, they didn't think that I can do it. Like, seriously, like they kind of doubted my abilities of whether or not I can go ahead and do a presentation like this. And so I laid the note cards out on the stage. And, you know, after my first presentation, I was like, you know what? I was like, that wasn't bad, but I could take it to another level. So I took those note cards. I went over to my colleague and I ripped the note cards up right in front of my colleague and I threw them in the trash can. I said, look, if I'm going to do this, I got to do this from my heart. I'm not going to do this off of slides. I'm not going to do this off of note cards. I'm going to do this how I want to do it. And from that- You don't want a speech. You want you want it to come from the part. You want it to be like, they, I'm not going to write this. You know, I'm going right, to say what I want. Right. I feel how I feel in that moment. Right. Because right. I, mean, I, I have some note cards. So I'm like- if I don't, like, uh-oh, uh, hi, I'm Sam, uh, bye-bye. Yep. So after I ripped up those note cards, I completely killed it in my next two presentations. And I said to my colleague, when I was done with all those presentations, I said, look, no more note cards. I'm going to do this my way. I'm not going to do it the organization's way. I'm going to do it my way. Because if I'm going to have success with this, if the organization is going to have success with this, you got to let me run it. You got to take the leash off of me and just let me go. And that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. And so- I don't do PowerPoints in my anti-bullying presentations. All I ask for is a mic and maybe a computer to play an intro video for me, but that's it. Other than that, I'll have the administrator, the principal, or the teacher introduce me, give me the microphone, and off I go. That does what separate you, and we like to do it my way. And C-103, my way the highway, for more information on that. But I was curious, how do you get the audience's attention? Well, I think, number one, I'm six foot nine, you know, I'm about a tall person. So I think that definitely gets their attention. But I think two things grab their attention right away. The basketball piece, me being a former basketball player, Michigan State basketball player, that definitely grabs students' attention. But I think the story of how I was diagnosed, doubted, and just where I'm at today, it catches kids' attention. But then when I mentioned the bullying part, Sometimes those kids will be like, oh man, here we go. Another anti-bullying presentation. But they hear my life stories about being bullied as a kid, how I was bullied because of my autism, because of my height. And once those kids hear these stories, they are immediately locked in. I don't lose them. And if I do lose them, it's maybe 10% of the school population, but the 90%, they're locked in the whole time. And I try to keep them engaged and involved as much as I can. 
And, and the one thing I asked, I asked a high school student this about uh, six years ago. I asked a senior in high school, I said, what separates me from every other anti-bullying presentation you've had here? And the student said to me, he said, honestly, I'm like, yeah, I want your all, complete honesty. He said, well, you don't BS. You're real with us. You talk to us like adults. You don't have PowerPoints. Like you talk to us like adults. Like you, you may, you're real. You're real with us. And I think that's what separates me from any other anti-bullying speaker in the country is that I'm real with students. Like, I'm going to be real with you. Like everything I talk to you about, it's from my heart and everything. Oh, how it is. You cut. Yep. I, it's chopped, I, exactly. You chop the vegetables. You don't like old grandma cut it. You like chop them down. Right. Exactly. And, and again, like, and I think the fact that I've been in these kids shoes before, I know what it's like. I, I think that's what grabs their attention too, is that a former Michigan State basketball player was bullied as a kid and look where he ended up being at today. Yes, sir. Now, out of curiosity, we, you talked about in the beginning, you said you take things literally. Did you ever get teased for that? Or did you ever have like an, oh, duh, why did I take that literally? No, you know, I, I don't want to say I got teased for it, but like there were times, especially in middle school, where I would break down in tears because I was just so confused and frustrated by what people said sometimes. And I, I didn't get made fun of it. You know, I, I think people just felt like it was more of why would he do, why is he breaking down like this? And again, it's like with any other individual on the spectrum, like if that person on the spectrum has an outburst in school and their fellow uh, students or fellow partners in crime at their school, the other students look at that person and go, why are they having a wig out moment? Like, why are they just being weird right now? Again, that's not understanding what that person on the autism spectrum goes through. And I think that was the thing with me in middle school. Like there were some times that I had certain things that I said and did that none of my classmates understood. And again, that was not knowing how much about what autism is. But, you know, I went through a lot. But at the same time, it also made me a better person. I, I think it did, too. I can tell it did. Now, folks, we'll be right back. And as when we get back, we're talking about Anthony's family and his personal life. But stay tuned and we'll be right back, folks. Stephen R. Miller, CPA in Bloomington, Indiana, will take the stress out of your tax preparation and filing. With over 35 years of experience, he is knowledgeable, friendly, and will help you reach your goals of minimizing your taxes without having to spend days reading through dry, technical, and difficult materials. Mr. Miller will prepare your forms and meet with you prior to filing to make sure that you know what to do and when to do it. Stephen Miller and Assistant Angel Shearer will make sure your tax prep is easy. See them today at 205 North College Avenue in Bloomington, Indiana. Tax season is right now and not around the corner. Call Stephen Angel at 812-332-0557 or email at stmillercpa at gmail.com. Do it now and don't wait until the last minute to do your taxes. All right, folks, and we're back. And yes, that is an excellent tax service that you need to do your taxes. All right, so Yanni, I did want to talk about your family and your wife. So how did you and your wife get the opportunity to meet each other? Well, long story short, it was at the salon that she currently works at. So it was my first year back in Michigan State, so my junior year. So this was a year I couldn't travel because I transferred. You know, the NCAA has transfer rules where back in the day, if you transfer, then you got to sit out a year. You got a red shirt, which, you know, I knew that coming in. I knew that with the decision I made. So my mom went to this uh, salon where they do a lot of stuff. They do like, you know, back massages, manicures, pedicures, haircuts, all that good stuff. So my mom was like, you know, you should go check out the salon. You know, maybe you get a back rub, you know, a shoulder massage, you know, just relax. So I went the first time I enjoyed it. I went back the second time when the team was taking a road trip to Texas and uh, the masseuse that I was talking to, she said to me, she said, Hey, uh, I got a possible hookup for you. I was like, Oh man, like, I don't know about this. Like, you know, my old roommate at Grand Valley state, he tried to set me up on a blind date with a couple of people. It just didn't turn out really well. And she's like, no, no, let me tell you about this person. So masseuse was telling me about, you know, my 
you know, future bride to be. And she was telling me how she was a big sports fan. She loved she loved all Detroit sports, whether it's Detroit Tigers, the, the Red Wings, the Lions, the Pistons. And I said, well, okay, well, I like what I hear, but I want to see her. You know, I want to see her face to face. And she's like, well, she's got a client with her in her chair. So no, but you can wave to her. I'm like, all right. So we, we walk out of the room. I see her from across the room. She saw me. She smiled at me. She said, hi, she waved to me. I waved back. And then I left my name and number on the back of one of her business cards. Now, her side of the story is she was never going to call me because she, she was really shy. I had to do all the, the heavy lifting, if you will. So I went on Facebook, looked her up, sent her a message saying, hey, you know, I was wondering if I could get your number, you know, I'd love to talk to you, you know, chat it up. So she sent me her number. Then we, we talked on the phone for two hours that later that night. Then a two-hour phone call became a three-hour text conversation. So we talked for like five hours that day. And so, and I asked her out on, you know, I asked her out on a date uh, the day after Christmas and the rest is history. And so that's how we met. So a couple of dates later, we, we made things quote unquote, Facebook official. And that's where we've been ever since. And, you know, we've been married for seven and a half years now. And we got two handsome, beautiful boys, Knox, who's our oldest, who's six and Nash, who's our youngest is three. And that was something else, Sam, people never thought I'd be able to do was to get married and have kids and a family of my own. For me to be able to have that crossed off my checklist in life. I mean, it, it's a blessing. And, you know, I, I've had a lot of other crushes in the past. I've been out on dates with people in the past before, but you know, to me, for that to happen, for me to find the right person for me, and not only that, but for us to have, you know, two incredible sons, you know, that's, that's what makes my life so great is that I have those three in my life and I would not trade anything, anything in the world for, for family time. I, I, I would. I'm glad you're like that. You seem like the big, you seem like the big family, man. I try to be, man. You know, I always say, you know, my, my priorities are always faith, family, and then whatever else is after that, you know, fa family's always going to be number one in my book, no matter what. Can you describe the feeling of like getting married? Oh man, I could tell you that it was a lot because, you know, from, from the planning perspective, it was a lot leading up to the wedding, but you know, just seeing how many people were there to support us, um, support me and my wife, we had I'm trying to think of how big our wedding party was. Our wedding party was, so this is bridesmaids and groomsmen. It was about 22 people. So we, we had a really big bridal party. So my wife had 10 bridesmaids. I had 10 groomsmen plus two ushers. You know, that, that's how much, that's how many people we've had in our lives that supported us. And, you know, it was really surreal, like I said, because again, that was a moment where people thought that would never happen to me, that I wouldn't find anybody for me because, you know, who I am. But when the day finally arrived and we both said I do to each other, like that was, you know, I tell people all the time, like the, the day my kids were born were two of the greatest moments of my life. But the day I said, I do to my wife was, you know, was top. You know, I mean, nothing else is going to top that. Oh, and now to this person, like what would be some advice if they ever want to find true love or get married or have a girlfriend or just be love life? My, my advice would be just be who you are. And when you find that right person in your life, it's because that person loves you for who you are and not for who you try to be or want to be. And I think that's the one thing I've always loved about my wife is that she loves me and married me because of who I am. She didn't start dating me because I played basketball for Michigan State. She dated me because she loves me and likes me for who I am and what I do, what I represent. And, you know, and I think that's the one thing she's always saw. She always loved about me. I didn't try to be anything else. I didn't try to be a different person. I just, I was just Anthony Ianni the whole time. You know, I was just who I am. And now are there times where you know, like like Lucy and, and Ricky Ricardo and the old I Love Lucy show, are there times where we fight at times where we don't understand each other? Absolutely. But you know what? You know, we that's every married couple. Right. That's every married couple. But you learn from those situations and, 
you know, you communicate. And I think that's the biggest thing in a relationship is just communicating with each other. So for somebody who's on the autism spectrum, who's looking for that one true love, that one real person to be with forever, just continue to be yourself. Don't change who you are. Don't change anything, what you do. Just continue to be who you are. And, it, and be patient because for me in high school and early on in college, I wanted, I wanted that girlfriend, man. I wanted that girlfriend to be around the whole time to watch me play. But you tried too hard. I, yeah, I, I tried way too hard. I really did, man. Like, and I'm not saying I chased anybody away. I didn't. I always got, because I was such a nice guy, because I made such great relationships with a lot of great people, there was always the friend zone. And so I was always in that friend zone with any of my crushes. I was like, it's like, man, like I just, for once in my life, I don't want to be in that friend zone anymore. <laughs> and so- but then I finally found that person who, you know, loves me for who I am. And so, you know, I'm very proud of that. So be patient. Know there's a lot of a lot of fish in the sea out there. And more importantly, don't change who you are. Yes, sir. So you also mentioned that you decided to have a family. So when did you and your wife decide to have a family? Right after we got married. I mean, th- there was always that conversation. What Are we going to have kids? Absolutely, we are. So it was always that conversation right off the bat. Was I nervous at first? Yeah, because I had never changed a diaper in my entire lifetime. I had never held an infant before. So I had to learn. I really had to learn quickly. And after we had our second son, Nash, you know, it was it was like clockwork. Like I, I was, I was like a professional basketball player, knowing, knowing what he was doing. All right. Change the diapers like this, throw the car seat in like this. We're good to go. But leading up to becoming a parent, it was really nerve wracking. It really was because again, it was something that I didn't know what to do at the time, but being around nieces, young nieces and nephews, like it kind of helped me prepare for those moments, but there was always talk of it. I mean, there was never a conversation where we said, no, we're not going to have kids. Like we both wanted kids and, you know, we got two incredible, incredible young kids, you know, that in my opinion, they're going to do incredible things with whatever they decide to do in their life. I'm hope so too. I wish the future for them. Well, now I know they're young, but has PDD affected your relationship with your children? Like, have you explained something like, um, wait a minute, let me explain it this way. You know, anything like that? Not yet. You know, cause I know a lot of people have asked me when, why, you know, why I ever revealed to my kids that I am on this autism spectrum and I will eventually, but just now's not the time, you know, because they're so young. I mean, my oldest is only six, my youngest is three, but they do know that daddy does. Daddy did play for Michigan state for basketball. They, my oldest knows that my oldest knows I do speaking. I speak for a living. He doesn't, he knows it's about bullying, but he doesn't know what it's about, about as far as like what I talk about. He just knows I go and talk to a lot of people, but when he's older, when he's maybe a teenager, yeah, I'm going to sit down with him and explain to him, you know, what I've been through, what I was diagnosed with and where I got. And who knows, maybe that motivates both my kids to go out and do more and greater things than their father ever did and accomplish in his life. So, but I plan on having that conversation with them one day. I do. Good. I think they need to know, honestly. I mean, I think now's all the time, like you said, but in the future, yeah. Now, let's say your kids are older right now. Talk to them. Oh, man. You're going to put me on the spot like that right now? I know. Uh, I, I would sit down with them and say, you know, son, like, so I, I just want to talk to you about, about me a little bit. So when I was four years old, I was diagnosed with PDD-NOS, which is on the autism spectrum. You guys may or may not have been learning about that in school. And if you haven't, this is what it is. Sometimes your father, you know, may say things differently out of the ordinary. Sometimes I may not be able to understand jokes or sarcasm. I may not be as patient with certain things. You know, I may not be as, you know, sometimes I may have to have a little extra help with some things. You know, this is what was said about me when I was five. And this is where I got to go in my life. And this is who I am. And I want you to know that. But I also want you to know that because I have autism, it doesn't mean it's a crutch in my life. It doesn't define who I am. 
you know, I'm your father. I was a basketball player. That that's what defines me. You know, what I do as a father, what I do as a speaker, and what I accomplished at Michigan State. That's what defines me. But that's what I want you. That's what I want to talk to you about. You know, if you got any questions, like just let me know. Yes, sir. I think you should show them this when you reveal it. <laughs> Absolutely, man. I plan on. I plan to. All right. So now these are just for some fun questions. So yeah. what is your paradise meal, and why is it your favorite or like your favorite food? And I'm assuming it'd be Italian because you're Italian, you said. It is. It definitely, definitely spaghetti. Spaghetti with meatballs, spaghetti with marinara, spaghetti with meat sauce, spaghetti with Italian sausage, chicken parmesan, like any, anything with spaghetti in it. Yeah, I, I absolutely love it. Spaghetti ice cream? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, cannolis with ice cream, if you will. But believe it or not, Mexican food has always been one of my favorites too. So if you if you take me to a, a great Mexican restaurant in, in Bloomington, you know, then yeah then I'm all in, I'm all in. But obviously like if, if you're talking about just grabbing something to go right away, it's Taco Bell. I'm, I'm always going to go to Taco Bell because Taco Bell is my number one. But when it comes to my ultimate meal, it's anything spaghetti. So now what is your favorite movie or TV show and why do you like it? All right. So for, oh man, so many of them. So many. Okay. Um, so for TV show, um, I'll go TV show first and I'll do movies. So for TV show, it was Friday Night Lights that was on NBC. But now it's um, now it's Chicago Fire or Chicago PD, which is on uh, NBC every Wednesday night. I love I love Chicago Fire and or Chicago PD. They're both great shows and my favorites. When I was in college, though, it was Friday Night Lights. Favorite movie. There's a lot of them, too. Oh man. <laughs> All right. Instead of my all-time favorite, I'm gonna give you my I'm gonna give you my top five. So you can do that. I'm going to do that. So number five would be The Replacements with Keanu Reeves. I love that movie. Number four would be A Knight's Tale with uh, Heath Ledger. Absolutely love that. Number three would be Godzilla, King of the Monsters, which came out two years ago. I love Godzilla. Number two would have to be uh, The Dark Knight when Heath Ledger was the, in the movie as the Joker and Christian Bale. And my number one all-time favorite movie would have to be uh, Miracle, Miracle on Ice. Why is that Why is that so good to you, in your opinion? I think for Miracle, Sam, it's because, you know, that was during a time period where everybody counted out the United States hockey team because Russia was just so darn good at the time. And nobody expected them to win the gold. They were the underdogs, if you will. And for them to go out and prove to people that, yeah, we may be smaller. We may not be as strong as the Russian team, but we're going to go out here and prove to you why we're going to go do this. That's that's why I love it, because it really is one of the, the great true underdog stories, you know, in sports history, in my opinion. It sounds like it. Now, it what is. has been your favorite vacation that you've ever taken? And why did you enjoy that vacation very much? Could be a family one. It could be just one with you. It could be a basketball vacation. I think for me, it was when, when Michigan State went to the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California, seven years ago. You know, I got to take my wife on that trip with me, and we went to Disneyland. First time she ever been to a Disney theme park, which was so much fun. And just getting to see Hollywood, California, Los Angeles. I've been to L.A. before, but I've never been, like, you know, in downtown or like the Hollywood Walk of Fame or anything like that. So, and then just seeing Michigan State football win that game, that was definitely my favorite. And, you know, I think it's definitely a trip that won't be topped. It'll be tough to top that trip uh, unless Michigan State wins the national championship in basketball or football in the next five years or so. But I think that was probably my all-time favorite, you know, because my wife and I were there with my, with my mom and dad and my sister and her and her husband. So that, that trip was a lot of fun. There was a lot of great, a lot of great memories and a lot of great fun. And, and we got to go to the Rose Bowl Parade too, which was 
definitely an incredible joy to, to be a part of. I'm glad you got to enjoy that. Now, are there any good memories that you want to tell our viewers about? If you do, why do you remember that memory the most? And this is the last question, by the way. But before you answer, I want like a good memory that made you just feel good in the moment. Like, and you guys, you probably already answered it, but I also want like a funny memory that made you fall on the floor. And it could be with your children, just a basketball one, one with your wife, one that happened recently, your call. I'll give you two. So my funny, my funniest memory I have is so my 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 best friend Jeff Jeff Paul, who I mentioned earlier, he and I are big big video game you know fanatics. Like we we love playing video games, especially against each other. So whenever we would play Halo, especially Halo Two, I, I'll be the first to admit this. I I was terrible at Halo. I still am to this day. But the one thing I would always try to beat Jeff with in Halo was the Ghost. Was that big huge like you know land speeder type of ship that just shoots weapons at everything. So every time I got the ghost, he would get so angry and so upset with me. He would always say, why do you always get the ghost? That's not fair. I'm like, cause it's the only chance I have of beating you. And so anytime he kept saying that to me, man, or just any kind of joke he would have would, would always just have me in tears on the floor laughing. My favorite serious memory though, was my senior year at Michigan State when we won the big 10 tournament and we beat Ohio State, you know, because we, we had lost to Ohio State the week before on our senior day and we we shared the big 10 champion the big 10 championship the regular season title but it was us ohio state the top two teams going at each other and we ended up winning that game and for me to climb up that ladder and cut down a piece of the net that day it was one of the greatest memories and moments i'll ever have it was just incredible that and of course playing in front on an aircraft carrier in front of the men and women of our armed forces who protect our country, the real heroes of our country, and getting to meet President Barack Obama. Like those two right there will always be my favorite memories that will always stand out for me. Yeah, you seem like you had some fun times in your life, man. I did, and I got plenty more to make too, man. You, you definitely that. do. I think that's all. Do you have anything you'd like to say before we head out of here? Uh, real quickly, um, anybody who's listening to this, if you got a dream or a goal in life, you got to be relentless each and every single day and attack those dreams and goals in life. Like you got to go get them. Like you can't just sit every day hoping that your dreams and goals are going to come to you. That's not how life works. We, we them. Exactly. You got to go conquer them. You got to go get them because at the end of the day, Sam, we don't dream our lives. At the end of the day, we live them. Thank you so much, Anthony. You have a great day, buddy. Thank you, my brother. You as well. <laughs> Thank you for joining me for this episode. Please tune in for another episode coming in very soon. Hope you enjoyed listening to me ramble. Thank you very much. That's the price you pay.